Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. The United States and South Africa are 9,000 miles apart and separated by an ocean. Nevertheless, the global system of colonial capitalism has formed a material basis for African unity. In the U.S., Africans make up 15% of the population. In South Africa, also known as occupied Azania, Africans comprise 90% of the population. Yet in neither place do Africans have power. In South Africa today, white settlers control more than 80% of the land. The vast majority of Africans in South Africa live in desperate poverty, crowded into substandard housing with no access to food, water, education, or health care. In the townships of South Africa, colonial and neocolonial forces have preyed on the African working class, stealing land and turning African working class communities into literal dumping grounds. The African working class has organized resistance against these conditions. In the townships of South Africa, Project Tutukani, a campaign of the Better Life Association, has organized the community for waste removal and meaningful economic development. To discuss this with us today, we have Director Asa Ampu. Asa Ampu is the Director of Organization for the African Socialist International Africa Region. Asa lives in the township of Everton West, occupied Azania. Asa is also the Director of the Better Life Association, a nonprofit organization dedicated to solving the problems of healthcare, education, and skills development in the townships. One of the Better Life Association's projects is Project Tutukani. Uhuru Director Asa, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. Uhuru Mafrika, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, all power to the people and uh, black power to the African community. Uhuru. Uhuru, Uhuru. So, can you start by giving our listeners an overview on the geography of South Africa, which we know as Occupied Azania? For reference for our listeners in the U.S., South Africa is about twice the size of Texas. So, where do African people live? What is the economy of the country? And what are the general conditions of life in the townships? Hmm. Thank you very much for that question, uh, brother comrade. Uh, South Africa, it, it's, it's a mixture of tropical as well as arid land. And places where, you know, the settlers settled are always the places where, you know, there's fertility, where the soil is very fertile. Uh, otherwise, if it's other kinds of areas, they just move people away. They moved African people away from those areas and built themselves some nice factories over there, you know, all kinds of situations like that. So, What's really happening in, in, in this country is that black people are moved to some things called the townships or the reserves, you understand? And the reserves are usually in places where things like monkeys and snakes and all kinds of other animals used to live, rocky areas, just really untenable areas. But sometimes we are lucky. Sometimes we do get a place whereby, like uh, Orange Farm, Orange Farm used to be a, a, you know, a very arable place. You could plant peanuts there. You know, but most of the time, yeah, regardless of whatever happens, townships have the soil capacity to produce things like um, pumpkin, you know, just in the dump sites, like in the streets, in the trash, you know. So South Africa basically has its economy, of course, capitalist, parasitic economy, but it has, you know, a movement of things such as 
copper, uh, such as um, various kinds of metals. Um, of course, veggie, uh, vegetables and fruits, you know, that, that's also a market here. Tourism, that's a thing. But uh, mostly it's mineral resources. Mineral resources in, in, in this area, in this part of our Africa, are very rich, you know, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, along that, can you tell us about, like, the townships? What are townships, uh, the, the general conditions of life in the townships? Because I know that some of the townships develop basically in relationship to the mines in which Africans were drawn to work at and things like that. So so, so what's, what's the history of the townships? What's the general conditions of life of Africans in the townships? Yeah, thank you, comrade. The townships are places where white people store workers, as you've said. And it's very, uh, it's very true that, you know, where I live in Everton West, there's, there's this thing called, uh, you know, there's this mine in this place called Matiki. Matiki is an area. They mine gravel there. Uh, they mine concrete, you know, as, as well as various other precious rocks that were used in the building of Johannesburg. So the townships are basically uh, reserves for human resources, uh, reserves for human resources. The houses where African people we live in are usually houses that we either built for ourselves through corrugated, uh, you know, zinc, or in another way, it, it can always be RDPs. RDPs came into effect in 1994 by the decree, 94, 95, 96 by the decree of the neocolonial ANC government, which uh, calls it reconstruction and development programs. So they, you know, they would build more places uh, for for these companies. You know, they would build more places for the workers to be able to come there and live a little closer to the companies. But basically, these places were very stuffy. These are, you know, small houses, of course, small units. There's just no way that uh, people could really be able to live. I, I remember one of our, you know, one of my fathers here was telling me about how these matchbox houses of Everton West are basically houses for minors. They were not houses for people coming here and making kids, cohabiting with women and whatnot. You know, African women, you can't do that. That's what the townships really are, you know. One of the things that really stands out about this to me is that, you know, I, I've watched the film Come Back Africa and I show it a lot over here. It's about, you know, African life in Johannesburg in the late uh, 1950s. And when you watch it, there's all these quote unquote hills and mountains around Johannesburg, which gives you the assumption that the area is a hilly area. but Colonialism, colonial capitalism has actually changed the geography of South Africa, it seems, because these aren't natural formations. This is the result, if I'm correct, of them digging up the earth yeah. for the purpose of mineral extraction to the point that it's actually literally changed the geography of South Africa. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, that is that is Africa. And it's funny that you mentioned that because Chairman Tafari was just speaking about that. Uh, yes, uh, last week, you know, when we were on our way to Shop, uh, from Shopville, and a, a comrade, Mohau, remarked, oh my goodness, you know, this mountain is ending. And Tafari was like, no, it's not really natural phenomena. It's because 
the white people keep cutting it, cutting it, and cutting it. You understand? So yeah, that's how that's how it is. You know, there's mountains that are artificial that are created by uh, these mining projects. You know, excavations and whatnot. And then yeah. Uh, what kind of jobs do uh, African people work uh, today over in Everton <laughs> West and and many of these other places? Also, yeah. uh, can you tell us a little something about uh, the healthcare? Okay, sir. The kind of jobs that African people have here, I'll say, firstly, jobs as in as defined, you know, um, you know, generally defined. You could say working as 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 you know cashiers, um, you know some in some capacity things like being a cashier is really helpful. Is really something that you know you are best to be able to receive here and other kinds of of of, of working class jobs that are of of that level. You know, you are a cashier over here. Maybe you sell uh, things, for, you sell Avon and things like that. You understand? That's a, that's a kind of a situation. And then you have, you know, labor intensive work, like working at the firms. We work at the firms for the white people. We work at the mines for the white people and the rich uh, blacks, you know, the petty bourgeois collaborators, usually politicians or people with those kinds of connections. If you can't get those two kinds of jobs, then you with the jobs with the rest of us, which is working class uh, as a provider of space. And when I say provider of space, I'm simply saying that there cannot be any Santin or, you know, Houghton or any Funder Bale Park for white people, which are very thrifty areas, right? Uh, you can't have those things unless you, you have black people who are living, uh, you know, in, in squalor, in a small position. We always say that black people are usually... A large number of people in a small space. That's part of our job. And also the second uh, type of job that we have is so-called unemployed people, which is, of course, uh, a word that needs to be reviewed because it's an inanity. Slaves can't be unemployed. As long as we're slaves, we're working, no matter what we do. So the other job is um, being a uh, you know, labor reserve, a threat of labor. Standing here, one worker gets chosen out of eight, He's thinking, I, I know things are bad, but I, it could, I could be one of those guys. So, you know, that's the kind of thing. So that's why a lot of things will emerge with horizontal violence, gangs, you know, fraud, stars, entire, you know, that's how people will generally have to survive, you know, other than selling cigarettes at the corner, as most young brothers do. That's, that's, that's just the average hustle. So the health standards in terms of like uh, how health is in the townships, it's a very interesting and precarious case because one thing I've noticed is that African people, African workers especially, are always undiagnosed or underdiagnosed because the students who go to university to learn how to uh, treat diseases are learning how to treat diseases based on the empirical, uh, you know, curriculum that came from, you know, white people's problems, you know, South Africans' problems, the citizens of this country's problems, and white people in general. So then, when a person who stays next to the trash or stays in corrugated uh, zinc, you know, when that person comes to you with a flu, that's not the average flu that you know of. So usually Africans get turned away from clinics and hospitals to the point where Africans don't even like going there because you always get yelled at and all kinds of things. So that, that just makes, you know, the health situation become something whereby African people deal, it, uh, deal with it ourselves. Either you go to a Sangoma, which is a traditional healer, 
which right, of course, right, are, right. Uh, former intellectuals, right? Yeah, former African intellectuals in pre-colonial Africa, in before South Africa was born. And then, uh, if you can't do that, then you just, you just, just, you know, grit your teeth through it, just like any other African. Shira Uhuru. Uhuru, Uhuru. Actually, I, I really, uh, you know, um, happy that you mentioned the San Goma situation. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I know that. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the root of the term Sangoma is the same word for drum. So it really uh, allows yeah. for, uh, looks at really a holistic understanding of what of what healing is. And it's not simply, you know, go to the doctor and take medicine or something like that. But instead, it's about overturning all the contradictions of life on which we live, you know, which which we understand as the colonial virus. So I had another question. So you have described conditions that seem no better than African people faced under the apartheid regimes. Apartheid yeah. was abolished in 1994, and the African it's National it. Congress, led by Nelson Mandela, came to power then. Why do we still see these terrible living conditions for the vast majority of African people, yeah. the African working class? Hmm. Uh, thank you for your question, Mo Africa. I think it's because South Africa is a colony, therefore it can only exist today as a colony, even if it has a new face. So the world economy hasn't changed. The thing that created South Africa has not changed, which is what? Which is colonialism, you see. So that's why <laughs> on this day we'll still be talking about the same conditions that uh, existed in apartheid more so. It's because, you know, there, there has been no change. No, there has been no change in Africa at all. So it's not yet Uhuru, as Sister Aleta Mbuli uh, always said. But then the thing is, the economic base, you know, for, for capitalism is what is actually still extant. It's, it's what still exists. So that's why South Africa, that's why black people are still in these same conditions. I don't know if I answered your question well enough in Africa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, thanks for that. Thanks for that. And, and thanks for mentioning Leta Mbulu because Leta Mbulu, Kaifis Semenaya, you know, Huma Sakela, and so many other uh, Africans that were in exile in the United States in the 1960s and 70s and 80s played an important role hmm. out here as well. And that's some of the reason why I actually even have the name uh, Matsamela. So at this point, since you've mentioned it, let's listen to the song, Not Yet Uhuru, by Leta Mbulu. Not Yet Uhuru was written in response to the continued struggles Africans face in the townships of occupied Azania.
was not yet Uhuru by Letta Umbulu. Asa, I noticed that you recently had a birthday. You were born one day following the 32nd anniversary of the Sharpeville Massacre. Can you explain to Africans in the U.S. what the Sharpeville Massacre was? Wow, yeah. Uhuru, comrade. Yeah, my, my, you know, my consciousness changes every time I revisit that place, you know, because we go there every two weeks, you know, in the party, we go there every two weeks because we're on a recruitment drive working there. So Sharpeville Massacre was basically a, you know, an event, um, a massacre. It was a straight up murder of African people that occurred due to the South African government's inability uh, to see that it was an illegitimate state. You know, the South African is basically colonialism that that, that created the the Chapville massacre because our people were told to have uh, passes. You know, they call it it don't pass in South Africa in Dutch. It's don't pass, you understand? So these passes, oversized passes and all kinds of things, it's just a whole lot of things that African people had to do in terms of just moving around. If you were going to visit a particular neighborhood, you had to go all the way to the police station, which is far. You have to get uh, money to take a taxi to go all the way there. And by the way, that's also very dangerous because white people don't want to see black people walking around, right? Uh, unless you go to work or you have a spanner in your hand. So you, you're taking that risk, trying to get certification for your don't pass so that at least you have permission for two days or five hours or 10 hours or whatever the case may be to say, I'll be in Everton West for this many hours. Okay. And then I'll be back to the way to, I'll be back to game or whatever the case may be. So that kind of humiliating, uh, you know, treatment of human beings of African people is what actually created the, uh, you know, qualitative understanding by the people that, yo, we're going to have to resist uh, this. And the PAC pulled together very well organized in Soweto, uh, as well as in the Val, the PAC pulled together a march, you know, as well as in other areas. So then in the Val at Sharpeville, 
that's where the Sharpeville massacre basically occurred because Robert Sugoko was in, in Soweto. But then they shot uh, they it, it involved they actually the situation escalated in, in in a certain kind of way because the people here were were actually you know massacred as as you know in Africa. But that's what really was behind the whole the, the massacre it was white people shutting down the resistance of the people. Uhuru, uhuru. And uh, just for clarity, Val, uh, 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 can you explain what a Val is? V A A L. And also, uh, P A C is the Pan Africanist Congress of Azania. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm sorry for, le- uh, for leaving that blank. You know, I should have said that. Yeah, so the Val stands for Transvaal. You know, it's, it's a particular section of what uh, used to be called Transvaal by the white people. You know, so uh, that's the Val. The Val is is usually uh, populated densely with the Dutch. You know, or you can they they call themselves Afrikaners, but there's no such thing as an Afrikaner unless it's Omali Yeshitela or myself or you, brother Oda. So because uh, <laughs> that word simply means African, right? So no, no, no. Yeah. So yeah, the Dutch the Dutch populate this particular area. The English are in Johannesburg. And, you know, places like Soweto and stuff like that, you'll find a lot of English-speaking uh, white people there. But here, it's it's Dutch. They can understand English, but Dutch and the English have their little beef that we get caught up in on our land, right? Uhuru. <laughs> uhuru, uhuru, uhuru. Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Yeah. Every year, the Sharpeville Massacre is commemorated as a national holiday in South Africa. However, you all do not simply use it as a moment to remember this historic event. In Occupy Designia, the Uhuru movement uses it, uses it as a chance to organize. This year, you all attended the Sharpeville commemoration. Can you explain that experience for us? Yes, sir. Uhuru. Uh, it was it was an interesting experience, Mafrika. Uh, because actually this was our first time in Chapville going there physically. It was our first time uh, as, as the party, you know, people had gone there individually and everything. So when we got there, we went for the commemoration and to see, we were trying to link up with the PAC and other any uh, grassroots organizations. We tried to link up with them and figure out what exactly gets to be done on these days and see if whether there can be some kind of political unity or some kind of program that can go out to the community. But we were disappointed to find that there's no such thing. Actually, that day was a day when there was nothing going on except for a, a march, a parade by the PAC. And of course, this is something they always do. But then the disappointing part is that the African community in Chubbville had no electricity especially that particular street where the shooting happened, where the massacre happened, <laughs> that block and seven blocks back, no electricity for days, you understand, and, or weeks or something. And then this was the day that the people had organized and said, okay, maybe the government will hear us on this day if we come out here, because then we'll, we, you know, we'll get attention. It's, it's Sharpeville Massacre Day, so at least maybe people in Sharpeville will get some kind of resources for warmth and heat and cooking and whatever. And, you know, the PAC, frankly, told the people where to get off. It attacked the African community. It told everybody that, yo, we want to march. We don't have time for this thing that you're doing here, man. This electricity thing is little. You know, the main thing is this memory, you know? And that was very disappointing. So the party stepped up, Chairman Tafari, uh, Brother Mulefi and Jablani, you know, these three forces 
from the African People's Socialist Party, including myself, you know, but yeah, these comrades stepped up and, and said, no, no, let's talk to the community. The community, what do you want? Okay. Electricity, right on. This is what we're going to do. There was a group of white people who came in, these white liberal Christians, right? Making the people dance, bringing some kind of strange drinks, you know, something that looked like Coca-Cola, but it had no labeling and it was already open and closed. So you don't know what's in it. It could be anything. White people, the Dutch love to experiment on African people here, just like they do anywhere else. So Chairman Tafari and Brother Malefi, you know, kicked the white people out of the out of the community, told them to leave, got to get out of here, right? And the white people backed up and got the hell out of there. The community started jumping in on that, and it became a dangerous situation for the white people. They had to get, they, yeah, they had to get out. <laughs> then then uh, the, the PAC here was arguing with the community, saying the community is standing in the way, uh, burning tires in front of, the, you know. They, so they had to call their president, and... PAC's president, you know, and he was saying, yeah, we'll take this up to parliament on such and such a day and when we get elected or something, you know, something asinine like that. Nonetheless, the community got the electricity back because of their community's resistance, not because of some middle class Negro talking, you know, shop. Anyway, yeah, we're recovering. That's how, that's how, that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, and then we went, we went into the community and asked the people, can we organize? Let's 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 do this thing. They they saw us. They understood that we were with them, right? But we told them, no, we are the Uhuru movement. This is what we're gonna be doing. Every two weeks, we're gonna be here, and we have been. We just from it last uh, last Sunday. We always go to Sharpeville because we've been taking numbers of people, uh, contacting people. People are interested, regardless of what you know. Yeah, they may seem like Uhuru. Thanks for that, comrade. Let's listen to the track Sharpeville by the trumpeter from South Africa, Hugh Masakela.
Sharpville by Hugh Masakella. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Asa Ampu. Asa, the neo-colonial state and other colonial forces have used the townships as their dumping grounds. Where does this garbage come from? And what impact does that have on the African working class community in occupied Azania? The treasure of the townships is from the suburbs. There's, uh, in every township, there's usually a trash, a mountain of trash. And the mountain of trash gets built up by trucks. Those trucks collect trash, not from the townships as such. They collect trash from the suburbs. The suburban areas where the white people live, right, dump their trash where black people live. And then black people's trash gets mixed up with that one as if like, you know, this is our trash, but not really. The truth of the matter is this is a dumping ground. Where the ghetto is, is a dumping ground. So that's what's happening in our situation. And if you could see it, comrade, I wish, I, I wish I'll be able to, you know, show people this thing because we're going to have a BLA documentary and we're going to climb the mountain. It's, it's bigger than any you know, normal building. It's, it's above 50, uh, 50 meters, you know, you'll have 50 meters of trash. So that kind of situation, that's where the trash comes from. And then the other kind of trash comes from things like malls, uh, these big malls, these, these, these malls and townships that have been brought here as a strategy by the uh, African National Congress's development plan. You know, whereby they push this agenda that, look, we're taking care of the people. Look how many malls we've got. You understand? And so these malls actually bring all kinds of contradictions into the community because they don't have a relationship with the community, whereby they'll be able to address sustainability and, 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 and land, you know, use uh, and, and, you know, just the respect for nature. They don't have that. So they, they fill up all this kind of trash all over the place. And the people are, are, are taken away from organization by the same institutions, by the same government that does this. So that's the first, that's the answer to the first question of Africa. And I would say how it affects the African working class, the African masses, even the African middle classes through uh, physical, you know, uh, physically, we have the situation whereby there's a lot of acid rain as a result. Where, where in the townships, there's, there's, the rain here is, is usually, it tastes or it's, it's to the eyes, very, it's very hurtful. It's very unusual. Of course, this also affects the ability to plant and things like that in, in the home. But that's just part of the issues. The other thing is the oxygen intake is very low. You know, yeah, the oxygen intake in the townships is very low as a result. Therefore, brain function and brain capacity also becomes compromised. That's another health aspect that comes from the physical situation. Then we have the psychological aspect, which is, the eyes are, con uh, you know, the eyes are connected to the brain. The brain creates the mind, right? So if the eyes see irregularities, then the brain, you know, interprets those irregularities. Then we have mental irregularities, whereby, you know, mood changes, uncertainty, uh, you know, a psychosis of sorts, whereby a person just is angry for no, no, no particular reason, right? You know, so. People don't understand that stuff and they think it's witchcraft. But every place where there's a lot of every, every place where there's a lot of trash, where there's dump sites all over the place, it, it, it seems like a place of witchcraft. And this is simply because 
of the chemicals that are exuded by um, these uh, living spaces that we're in, you know. Not to mention the fact that, of course, factories and other kinds of things that white people have built in Nepal are, are very close to where African people live, all the way to Sasol, Buru. Did you say witchcraft? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Yeah, because, you know, one of my favorite songs by Humasakela is a song called Witch Doctors. Stanley got a letter from King Leopoldo, but it says oh, yeah. a witch doctor. And I remember, I remember when I first saw it, it was spelled W-H-I-T-C-H. And I'm thinking, oh man, he, he sort of, he kind of like, whoever did this album misspelled it. But what he actually, I realized first off, like when Stanley met uh, Livingston, or no, well, whatever the guy, when those two colonizers met each other, uh, apparently he says, uh, doc, uh, he says, Dr. Livingston, uh, I presume, right? So Master Keller goes, which doctor? Livingston, I presume, which doctor, right? But what Master Keller's actually <laughs> doing in that song is something different. What he's actually saying, I think, is that colonialism has bewitched African people. Right. Yeah. So so uh. so we're so so we're stuck in a situation in which the healers, the traditional healers trying to do anything they can to overturn these contradictions are the ones being called witches, the Sangomas, which they're not. The real spell being cast upon African people, he's saying in that song, is the one of colonialism that we understand as the colonial virus. So that's why he says witch doctor. Right, so he's saying that the colonizers are the witch doctors, mm. casting this spell, this madness, upon the lives of African people. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in the U.S., we're very influenced by some of that older stuff. But then every time I talk to a comrade from South Africa, they want to know about Mozzie and Sibo and all these other people. So <laughs> I know it's kind of, a, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of yeah, interesting, it's right? Because you know. I, I, yeah, I, I was talking to comrade Zakele and I was telling him my yeah. whole record collection. I, like, like how, yeah, like, like how, how I've got, how I've got all this old classic, you know, music, <laughs> And and and, and I guess that's like a you know and and he's like but then I come to find out he liked the other stuff I like the Sibo and the Mozzie and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 all and yeah and, and, and all that and all that new stuff you know so but 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 anyway yeah, like yeah. I said uh, Masa Kayla, uh really says that that's why I think where you said. It's like basically it bewitches us. It's not in a subjective sense, an idealized sense. You're basically suggesting that there's a clear impact between colonialism and the mental state of African people in the townships. Yes, sir. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, So how is the struggle against the neocolonial state also a struggle over taxation and resources? Thank you, sir. Um, the struggle against the neocolonial estate is thus through, you know, let me say because of the need for our people to be self-determining because of the need for our people to live, you know, to have food, clothes and shelter. Then we have the question that's often posed by the Uhuru movement of taxation without representation. You know, why is that happening? 
you know, African people get taxed by the South African government to improve its institutions, which kill Af African people, right? Yeah, then that simply means that this, this, this taxation that's happening is something that needs to be struggled with. So that's not a struggle that's ever happened since 1994. You know, that's not a, a struggle that's been happening, uh, except for the Uhuru movement raising it through the Better Life Association. You know, just recently, that's that's the thing. When in 2018, uh, when the BLA was was constructed, that's that's what became a thing. That yo, how people are being taxed, and you know, I'll just say that, for example, the ANC says that uh, trash is is something that's you know not supposed to be where the people are living and whatever. But cars, you know, the 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 dump trucks don't come here. It's been eight years. They don't come here. It's been, you know, a lot of years. They just do not come here. You you'll see it once every maybe five years, or once every three years. It'll pass. It's not taking any trash in Everton West. In Everton, this is how things work. You know, in some areas, of course, you know, there's some kind of handling of that kind of thing. But even then, the dump sites still fill up, which is interesting enough. But nonetheless, comrade, yeah, that's that, that, that's the thing. Uhuru, uhuru, uhuru. Yeah, no, this this is great. This is great. Thanks for this. I know we've touched on it already, but what is the Better Life Association and how did it get started? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, I'm laughing because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm laughing because it's a beautiful question. The Better Life Association is the Uhuru Movement's expression on getting African people to organize our, 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 our healthcare to organize our educational capacity and to organize our skills development. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's socialism in an embryo to show how socialism can be directed by the party, by the party's philosophy, to the people, to the practice. That's what the BLA generally just is, you see. And so the other aspect of that question, Africa, can you ask it again, please? Yeah, yeah, how did it begin, right? Uh, correct, correct. Yes, sir. Thank you. I just got excited with the first part of it. So how the BLA began was uh, initially through S.G. Luezi, because living with S.G. Luezi in 2018, in August, we started getting a sense of what an African internationalist thought process was like just in the house in general, just in the house, you know, not necessarily in the street or writing a POA or anything or teaching, but just how do they live? An African internationalist would tell you this dust that's coming into the house impacts on the people's ability to think or cognition and things like that. And that's when it started connecting back with what Franz Fanon used to say, you know, about how colonized people, as you spoke about in terms of the witchcraft, and which, you know, uh, sometimes people call it witchcraft <laughs> that's created by colonialism. So he would say, yeah, 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 that's. Those kinds of things are the reason our people are always in stupor. Our people are always, you know, mentally backwards. It's not because our people are stupid or something. It's because colonial conditions uh, lessen the consciousness of our people. So we learned how to pick up papers from S.G. Luezi. We learned when you're walking in the streets, things like that. And he said you could create programs around this. And from then, me and my, uh, and, and my comrade, Muhao, Muhao Letai, 
we started saying, yo, did you hear what Ch- what Brother Luizzi said? You know, because we were the only people that ever dressed with him at the time uh, from the party. So that's that's how it, 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 it you know, Luizzi Kishasa like initiated the, the BLA. So with Project Tutukani, you all are taking this problem of garbage dumping head on in the townships. What can you tell us about Project Tutukani yeah. and the garbage removal? Thank you, sir. In terms of Project Tutukani, what I can say about it is that it's the second project of the Better Life Association. So the first project already had given us an understanding politically in terms of how we want to run these programs of the Uhuru movement. So how it works is Project Tutukani is based on removing uh, and managing waste as well as developing lands or developing some kind of an economy in our community. How it works is we want to destroy dump sites. You know, we call we call them trash sites or dump sites. We want to destroy them because there's a lot of them in, in the townships, in every township in South Africa. There's just dump sites after dump sites, you know, in any open space. If it's not going to be a shack there, it's going to be a dump site. So... This was an initiative that saw us destroy um, two to three dump sites in Everton West and in other areas where we operate. Our plan is always is always that with project number two or project Tutugani. So how it works is that it, it it sees us going into the community for outreach first of all because we don't want to just clean up and then people come and are uninformed and uninvolved and just isolated from the politics of why it's clean in the first place. We involve people in the process of cleaning. So that means people contribute their skills, their knowledge, as well as their, you know, fiscal contributions, you know, we'll take any uh, any amount, but the standard that we set was 20 rands, you know, so people donate to the project and we are hiring African workers in it as volunteers. And we say, okay, fine. We actually pay these sisters and brothers the the money that comes from the community. So the children of the community are being fed by the community to take care of the community. And that's an experiment of socialism. You know, so um, that's how it actually functions in Africa. We teach our parents and households how to separate food waste, which is stuff that you can either use for you know, farms, you know, for farming, for animals, pigs, goats and whatever, you know, things like fufu after it's used up, or bread crusts, or peels, you put that aside and separate it from papers, plastic, cloth, diapers, and whatever. So the other stuff is called dry trash, and the stuff that works in farming is called food waste or wet trash. So that's how we do it. And it's it's been very successful, comrade. We've been able to establish two open spaces. One space, we created a, a garden there, community garden, and we gave it to some uh, volunteering parents, and the other space has been cleared up, and it, it, it serves as a as an operation for a, a group of brothers that are doing tent making. Uhuru. Uhuru, yeah, thanks for that, because Project Tutukani and the other program that you all have, which was a clothing project, yeah. are redefining the meaning of labor, as well as reclaiming land and resources for the African working class. Can you deepen oh, yeah, that for us? Definitely, Mafrika. Chairman O'Malley always said that the basis of life is labor. And so African people being able to live, we have to labor. And in order to labor, we have to live. Living 
being economic, you know, being on the consumption of food stores and shelter. We need to be able to improve those things. We need to improve the ability of African people to live. But who are we? We are those African people who can't live. We are the working class. So that's just how the the whole relationship is, really, in terms of like um, how 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 this is applicable, you know, as 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 the future of African economics, even. Yeah. So sometimes we say that, you know, we don't even want money. We want what money buys. <laughs> Yeah, that's what workers want. Workers want the land. Yeah, Uhuru Comrade. I hope I answered that adequately. Uhuru, thanks for that. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today is Asa Ampu. So, Asa, the other day we were talking about the connections between Project Tutukani and projects we have on the ground in the U.S., such as the Black Power Blueprint in St. Louis, or even the Black Power at the Border outreach that we do in Tijuana, Mexico. How do you see connections between these projects? How I see this connection between these projects is through uh, these projects being part of the same trajectory, which is resistance uh, and organization for the African nation. You know, that's how I see this relationship between them. And so... I think they'll feed into one another and they'll also inform Africans all over the world of what each of us are doing in order to meet in the middle. Uhuru. Uhuru. And we've been talking about African unity. You're an MC, a hip-hop MC. Do you think that hip-hop has helped unite the African nation from the U.S. to South Africa in particular? <laughs> I would say so, you know. Yeah, I would say so. Uh <laughs> Yes, sir. I, w- I would say I think it did. Although, of course, it has to be controlled by this particular class, you know, the African working class, because as it is, it serves to unite and disunite the the the, the African masses, the African population. Because at the end of the day, hip hop right now, as it is, is is pretty bourgeois led, you know. So that's 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 the situation that now makes a lot of African workers get put off by the the, the, the hip hop thing or want to jump in bed with the with the corporations, you know. So either way it's not gonna be good for us as African people. So then it needs to be controlled by the African community. I would say black community control of hip hop would be like the most yeah important campaign we could take on as hip hop MCs, you know. But I definitely see its effect. Yeah, I think it's positive in that aspect. Yeah, uhuru, uhuru. thanks for that. Because as as we've said, you know, um, I think I've already mentioned it, but you know, my name itself, Matsumela, is a name that was given to me by my father. My father was very influenced by the musical uh, musicians, uh, jazz artists, and stuff like that that came from uh, South Africa: Huma Sakela, Letambulu, Kaifas, Simanaya, and others. Uh, so it's not a coincidence that he took a name. For me, uh, Matsumela is my given name. Uh, that uh, from 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 Southern Africa. So just as at that moment, uh, jazz had played a way through which uh, Africans, uh, you know, united, uh, spoke of the struggles, uh, and were mobilized and things like that. Uh, Hip hop has historically played a similar uh, function, but as you noted, uh, you know, it has to be in the hands of the African yeah. uh, working class. So thanks for that. So on that note. What does the future hold for the African liberation struggle in South Africa and beyond? Yeah. Wow. 
That's a big question. <laughs> well, uh, success. <laughs> That's what I see. Uh, I believe that the, the, you know, the future will see African liberation happen for real uh, on the ground, especially because of what uh, the African People's Socialist Party is, has created uh, through the theory. You know, the theory has been very instrumental in just fixing and closing the gaps where African people had always been struggling. It really did what Temen Omali uh, likes to say, which is solving the problems of the revolution. So I, I see African liberation on the continent, you know, in terms of the black power movement on the continent. I see that really merging in very well and feeding into what's happening in the United States, feeding from it, feeding into it. Uh, back and forth. So I, I think it's a very beautiful pollination process. And yeah, on the ground, we're going to take them by surprise. We're going to take them by surprise because they don't expect African workers to be thinking, right? Yeah, they, don't, they don't think so. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Not at all. They, they, they really don't. But like you said, um, you know, we don't want the money. We want the stuff yes, that sir. the money can buy. Uh, so I, I I really like that. I really like that. Uhuru. You're listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guest today was Asa Ampu. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guest, Asa Ampu, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Oh, oh, oh.